Today on Government Matters, some feds see more money in their paychecks soon, but there's a catch. Senator Chris Van Hollen on opting out of the payroll tax deferral or getting the money back later. Buying the cloud, the National Archives goes where it's never gone before. Its deputy chief information officer reveals the strategy. And the future defense task force wants significant changes at the Pentagon. Is Congress's new alarm a beginning or a non-starter? Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Federal employees may have the opportunity to opt out of the Social Security payroll tax deferral. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin called that a reasonable request at a Senate Banking Committee hearing recently. Senator Chris Van Hollen of Maryland asked Secretary Mnuchin about that issue. Senator Van Hollen joins me now. Senator, thanks for coming on the program. Before we play the video of that exchange, you reference a letter in this uh, question to uh, Secretary Mnuchin that you and some colleagues wrote about that deferral for federal employees in the military. What was in that letter, Senator? Well, Francis, it's good to be with you. Yes, uh, over 20 senators uh, sent a bipartisan letter uh, to the secretary, uh, really urging the administration to allow federal employees to opt out of President Trump's uh, you know, payroll tax deferral program if they so chose. So we think it should be voluntary. This is a little bit of a shell game that's being played here. I mean, people would have uh, not have their payroll taxes uh, withdrawn during the months, the, the coming months, but after the end of the year, uh, the opposite would happen. They'd have to put more money in than normal. So we think this should be a voluntary program. I was pleased to see Secretary Mnuchin agree that that was reasonable. Senator, here's the exchange between you and Secretary Mnuchin. Let's watch. I wrote to you about this along with the number of my colleagues. We sent a bipartisan letter simply asking you this, um, that with respect to folks in our military and our federal civil servants, that you at least give them the choice as to whether or not to participate, that you don't force folks in the military or federal employees uh, to participate if they don't want to do it. Could you give us a brief answer, Mr. Secretary? Yeah, yes, I, I, could you, and, and when we're going to get an answer to the letter and also what your answer is. Um, I'd be happy to follow up with OMB, who's responsible to have the agencies. Uh, I think that's a reasonable issue if people don't want to participate, but let me follow up with them. Senator, that exchange was on September 24th. Uh, what response have you gotten to that letter or to your question at the hearing uh, to Secretary Mnuchin? Well, Francis, uh, unfortunately, we still have not gotten a response to the letter or any follow-up from the secretary. Uh, I'll be sending them a letter to follow up uh, in the next day, uh, probably send it out today. Uh, and it's outrageous, really, that they've made this a compulsory program. Uh, most of the private sector employers have, are not participating. Uh, I think the United States Post Office just decided it was not going to participate. The United States Senate, uh, so far at least, uh, is not participating. The House is not participating. So why require our military men and women and federal employees uh, to participate if they don't want to? Uh, we shouldn't be forcing them 
to do this. And so I'm going to keep pushing uh, the secretary, the OMB, the Trump administration uh, to treat, you know, our military and federal employees with some degree of respect here and give them the choice. President Trump has said if he's reelected, he will convince Congress to forgive this deferral. Is it possible that if the Senate flips and former Vice President Biden's elected president, that Congress could forgive this uh, payroll tax deferral in that scenario, too, for the federal employees that it impacts? Well, sure, they could, theoretically. But this was a proposal that was not popular among Democrats or Republicans on Capitol Hill. Uh, this was a, a shell game cooked up by uh, President Trump. He's also said that he'd like to eliminate uh, the payroll taxes uh, permanently, which uh, the Social Security actuary has indicated would essentially bankrupt uh, the Social Security Trust Fund. So President Trump says lots of things, uh, but right now most of the private sector is not participating. So the whole issue of forgiving this at the end of the day is a moot point. The point we're making is that federal employees should be given the choice uh, and not be forced to participate. This is, in my view, uh, more of a political stunt. And the fact that most of the country doesn't want to participate shows that it's not very popular. So why force our servicemen and women and federal employees uh, to do so? What are you hearing from your constituents about this, Senator? A whole lot of confusion. And I think most federal employees uh, would uh, like to opt out of this. Uh, and certainly they would like the choice of it because they're getting conflicting messages uh, from different federal agencies. So, for example, if you leave federal service before the end of the year, you're, of course, you're then personally liable uh, potentially for making those payments. So it just complicates people's finances with, with really no uh, benefit. Uh, because it all has to be paid back uh, at the end of the day. So, Francis, this is why it's never been uh, something that has had support on Capitol Hill among either party. Uh, and we're simply asking, I think, what everybody would uh, want, which is, you know, don't be forced into a program uh, that you don't want to participate in. We That's the bottom we have about a minute left, Senator Van Hollen. Given the challenges that agencies have had with payroll issues across government from time to time, shut down and other times, what do you think the potential logistical hurdles would be to allow 2.1 million federal employees or the portion of this that the, uh, uh, that the payroll tax deferral impacts to be able to decide some of them want to defer, some of them think it's fine? Getting that right strikes me as potentially a, log a logistical challenge. Well, they really should have thought of that before they announced it, right? I mean, this is the kind of thing you would hope that uh, agency heads uh, would take into account before they announced a, a program. Uh, and uh, look, in, in the as I mentioned, the, the, the Senate has not implemented this uh, program. The House has not implemented this program because they recognize that the employees in the House and Senate are, don't really want it. So why federal agencies decided to plow ahead before giving federal workers a chance to weigh in, uh, at the very least. Uh, I, I don't know, except for this was part of the president's political effort to try to, you know, indicate he was doing something when, in fact, it was something counterproductive in the minds of many people. Senator Chris Van Hollen, thanks very much for joining me again. I appreciate it.
Good to be with you. Thanks, Francis. Up next, taking agency archives to the cloud straight ahead on Government Matters, the race to hit a 2022 deadline for killing paper records. You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. The National Archives and Records Administration is executing a new multi-cloud strategy to make it easier for agencies that have already moved to the cloud to transfer documents to NARA. It's part of a giant digitization effort at the agency and all across government. Agencies have another year and a half to stop sending NARA paper records. Sheena Burrell is the Deputy Chief Information Officer at the National Archives and Records Administration. Sheena, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. What does this strategy look like? What are the elements of it and how much of it have you borrowed from other organizations? Uh, and we have actually borrowed some. We've talked to NASA as a place I used to work. Um, and earlier this year, prior to COVID-19, we sent out an RFI to help tackle this same question. And just to get opinions from vendors and other um, people who have done something like this before. So currently, NAR utilizes the Amazon Web Service for infrastructure as a service and platform as a service. And with this in mind, we're considering a single award or a blanket purchase agreement for a multi-cloud service provider, or if not feasible, a single cloud service provider through which we can continue to obtain infrastructure as a service and platform as a service solution. What's the advantage that you expect to gain from continuing in a multi-cloud platform, from continuing in a multi-cloud strategy? Yeah, so other agencies that have to transfer their records to NAR are transferring them from any cloud hosting environment and NAR needs to be able to be prepared to ensure an efficient transfer of records into its legal and logical custody regardless of the agency's cloud service provider. So we want to be able to make it faster for them to transfer their records in as easy as possible. You mentioned the RFI that you undertook earlier in the year. What did you learn from that? What feedback did you get back from industry about how to move forward? Honestly, we did get a lot of feedback about different tools. Um, and solutions, we're taking it all into consideration and something that's going to come out later this year. It's not much that we can share right now since it's a still ongoing acquisition process. You mentioned though that this is similar to work that you did at NASA and I wonder what's changed between the time that agencies undertook this two, three, four years ago and agencies that might be looking at doing this today if there are things that are available to them now that weren't before or if there are policies and procedures that help them do it better or faster? You know, so there are some different policies and we're actually coming out with um, some policies. So on January, on June 30th, I apologize, we released our digital preservation framework, which is open for public comment right now. But we're also making some changes in our regulations uh, for digitizing permanent federal records and how to dispose of the original source where appropriate. But also because of the technology, there are so many tools that are available. Uh, and also because a lot of the agencies are moving to cloud first, we have to make sure that we're taking into consideration our modernization efforts and adapting so that we can make it easier to do those transfers. Is there, uh, is there a sense of urgency on the part of NARA to kind of keep pace with other agencies or is it just important that you're on that track at some point? I think it's actually important for us to be on that track, but it's very important as you have mentioned, 
NAR is going to stop accepting paper records from different agencies by the end of 2022. So we have to be able to have the infrastructure in place to accept uh, all the digitization um, and all the electronic records. So we have to have the infrastructure and modernization in place to do that. The collaboration effort that your agency undertakes on an ongoing basis is important. Uh, we reported this week about the uh, collaboration with the Department of Veterans Affairs on the digitization of deck logs. What did that look like from the NARA perspective, Sheena? This is really an exciting project for NARA. So the Blue Water uh, Act was passed in 2019, and we had very little time from the summer of 2019 to January of 2020 to help VA get these paper records from us. Um, these were paper records that we stored and then we sent them in to VA. We helped them with their digitization effort in terms of scanning and then actually taking that data back into our um, digitization lab and ingesting that information. So this summer, we ingested about 13 terabytes of that data that was scanned from VA. And then later this fall, we plan to ingest another 45 plus or minus terabytes of data. It, the, the volume's incredible. NextGov reported this week, it was equivalent to about 29,000 boxes of paper records. Is it as simple as just scanning paper records or is it more complex than that, Sheena? It's actually a little more complex. So once you scan in the paper records, it doesn't automatically become machine readable. And we need to be able to go through and get that metadata so that they become searchable. So the contractors at VA are definitely looking at the scanned records and doing some of that metadata and um, making it in a searchable format. That's part of the digitization. This speaks, though, I think, to the point that I mentioned at the beginning and that you just uh, talked about a moment ago, which is by the end of 2022, the government will be out of the business of exchanging these paper records for exactly those kinds of reasons, right? Absolutely, yes. What do you expect to see digitization-wise moving forward? What does the timeline look like for you, Sheena? We have about a minute left. Um, so the timeline right now is really one, getting some of our policies and, and procedures in place, having conversations with the different federal agencies, helping them with digitization efforts, and then moving forward with receiving only uh, electronic records and, and as starting as early as 2023. Sheena Burrell, thanks very much for joining me this morning. Appreciate your time Hi. today. Thank you. Have a good one. Up next, escalating artificial intelligence to keep up with China and Russia. Straight ahead on Government Matters, Congress calls for a jumpstart for the Pentagon's AI efforts. The Federal Beat is up next. Welcome back. The Defense Department needs an attitudinal shift, according to a group of members of Congress from both parties. The Future Defense Task Force calls out Russia and China as adversaries and recommends faster development of artificial intelligence and unmanned weapons systems. Tony Bertuka is chief editor of Inside the Pentagon. Lauren Williams is staff writer for FCW, both of them following this task force and the work that they've done. Thanks very much for joining me, both of you. Lauren, I'll start with you. You write in your reporting about this AI, artificial intelligence, was at the fore of the task force's recommendations, starting with the first one. How pervasive would this task force of members of Congress like to see AI become in weapon systems across the Pentagon? The task force indicated in its report that they'd like to see it throughout every major acquisition 
program that the DOD has. And they even suggested a stipulation that would tie funding requests um, to the consideration of automated unmanned systems um, and AI tools. Strikes me there's a big policy note here that you mentioned too. You write, uh, those programs should be AI ready and interoperable with existing and planned joint all domain command and control networks, according to that report. That's significant, I imagine, because it says Congress has really bought into uh, the JADC2 concept. Yes, the, the report, at least for me, basically says, you know, Congress is hearing what DOD is saying and they're, they're believing it and they're saying, this is what we want you to do. We want you to prove it. We want you to plan for it, um, not just with integrating technologies, but also thinking about operational concepts and how the personnel and the people portion will fit around these new technologies. Tony, welcome. Where did this task force come from? What's the genesis of this? They've been working at this for about a year, but how did this come about in the first place? So this comes from the House Armed Services Committee. It's co-chaired by Seth Moulton of Massachusetts and Jim Banks of Indiana. Uh, when they rolled out the report, they made clear that they think that the most value it has is that it's a bipartisan congressional report. Uh, you know, they want Rand and GAO to maybe study a few things at the Pentagon, but they really wanted to drive home that the value of this report is that it's a product of bipartisanship in Congress. So these are lawmakers who have teams of Republicans and Democrats who came together and had consensus, which is unusual in Washington these days, but they achieved consensus on these recommendations. Uh, the other thing to note is that we've got Mac Thornberry, uh, the senior Republican on the House Armed Services Committee retiring. He has made defense acquisition reform one of his key focuses um, Moulton and Banks, when they rolled the report out, said, uh, watch our careers because this is going to be a career-long fight for us both. And they both committed to sort of picking up that, that cause. One of the very specific things that this bipartisan group agreed on, Tony, is that while Russia, they're citing Russia as uh, a potential adversary, as a competitor vis-a-vis uh, -vis the national defense strategy, um, your colleague Justin Doubleday quotes this, China represents the most significant economic and national security threat to the United States over the next 20 to 30 years. They're making it very clear that if this is what they're going to work on throughout their congressional careers, they're making it pretty clear where they're staking their bets, right? Oh, certainly. And this is part of a, a broader shift that began toward the end of the Obama administration when you had the third offset under Ash Carter and Bob Work. Um, and I think, you know, certainly the 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 threat of of China's military and the way it is able to integrate uh, its economic uh, forces, uh, that is something that has gotten the attention of the United States military. They put out the China uh, power report every year, and, and they've been talking about it for years now, that you know China is the geopolitical adversary for the United States. Lauren, you uh, mentioned a number of things in your report here that you have uh, that you've covered uh, numer in, uh, uh, a lot. And one of those is the fact that these members of Congress in this report are saying, invest in places uh, that are innovating across the department. What's your takeaway from that? What, how do we watch that? to see wh whether Congress puts their money where their mouths are? I think the takeaway there is going to be in organizations. There was definitely a call out in the report um, giving praise to some of the efforts DOD has had with the Defense Innovation Unit, um, Army Futures Command, which is Ar the Army's Modernization Command. They're seeing how these 
new organizational approaches to tech modernization are working and they like it and they want to see more of it. They even called out Kessel Run um, during the, the unveiling of the report. So I think they want to see this scale up and we're going to have to watch the space to see if that can actually work. Tony, what's your sense of what's connecting all of those innovative pockets across the Pentagon? The one critique of those organizations has been they're doing great work. We're not sure, this is Congress, we're not sure how they're all connected and how each of them knows what the other is doing to, to tie that innovation work together and accelerate it as quickly as possible. Yeah, certainly the criticism we've heard now for years is that these are just brush fires of innovation and excellence that don't get uh, you know, transmitted into larger programs. But that gets back, though, to some of the, the report's more specific recommendations, right? They do make broad recommendations that are hard to see as immediately actionable, right? They say, we want a Manhattan project for artificial intelligence. That's a little bit less actionable than, all right, Pentagon, from now on, you're going to spend a lot more on these internal innovative efforts like Kessel Run, AFWorks, and DIU, and we want you to evaluate an AI or autonom autonomous alternative for every major defense acquisition program. Those are things that are fairly actionable in an NPAA, uh, Congress's annual defense policy bill, if, if they're able to, to put it in the paper. Tony Bertuca, Lauren Williams, great contributions. Thanks both very much. Thanks, Rodney. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. You get a preview of every newscast. By signing up for our daily program guide, you just text govmatters to the number 22828. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.